This podcast is a production of the Berkshire Argus. Important stories fully told. Hi, I'm Matt Tannenbaum, and I am the bookseller here in Lenox and have been here since 1976. If you can count that number of years, it's 47, so I'm in the middle of my 48th year. I wanted to be a writer, but I was not very good. Thankfully, I didn't write any poetry. I didn't know who I was losing to Amazon because they didn't come in anymore. I didn't see them. I'm supporting you. I'm providing these books that you want and need and should have in your life. So it's a give and take. And so I am the purveyor of that knowledge, of that information to the public. This is Bill Shine from the Berkshire Argus. It's been nearly 50 years since Matt Tannenbaum purchased the bookstore in Lenox, tucked away on Housatonic Street, just a stone's throw from other storied Berkshire's venues like Tanglewood and Shakespeare and Company, and little changed over the decades that he's owned and managed it, but for the addition of a small wine bar that's open all day. Both bookstore and bookseller exude beatnik energy and vibe, but that description doesn't do either justice. In this podcast episode, Tannenbaum talks about losing his Vietnam-era draft deferment, joining the Navy, where a fellow seaman introduced him to the work of Henry Miller and other writers, learning the bookselling trade at the storied Gotham Book Mart in New York City, and his mid-1970s arrival in the Berkshires with dreams of being a writer. He describes how he came to buy the bookstore in 1976 with a handshake deal, his brushes with literary figures like J.D. Salinger and Anais Nin, and many more stories about the writers and readers who have long patronized his shop for the personal service and sense of community, something that survived despite the onslaught over the years from discount behemoths like Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. Tannenbaum is a nonstop storyteller whose own story, at least in part, is told in the documentary Hello Bookstore filmed over the course of a year that included the arrival of COVID lockdowns and a financial crisis that nearly forced him to close. But a GoFundMe campaign in the summer of 2020 raised $60,000 in just 24 hours, meeting its original goal and continuing on to raise $125,000 from more than 1,200 donors. The success of that Save the Bookstore campaign was a testament to the value of a small bookstore in the community and the relationships Tannenbaum has nurtured over nearly a half-century in business. Aside from the funds raised, it's the comments left by the bookstore's friends and supporters that make clear its importance to many in the Berkshires and beyond. One patron donated $35 and wrote, The bookstore is not only a wonderful place to buy books, it is a community center where you are welcomed with open arms even if you are a stranger, but won't be one for very long. Another wrote, Everything that was great and good about the 60s is here in this dude and in this store. Tannenbaum will soon turn 78 years old, so we also spoke about a coming transition of the business to one of his daughters and his plan to continue to hang around the bookstore and continue his conversations with friends and customers that began decades ago. 
A free screening of the documentary and a post-film talkback with Tannenbaum and director Adam Zaks will be held at Mason Library in Great Barrington on Saturday, February 3rd at 7 o'clock, with doors opening at 6.30 for snacks and wine. One technical note. Tannenbaum and I spoke last week in his cramped back office at the bookstore, where the heating system came on repeatedly with a roar, creating some background noise that you may notice in the recording, despite best efforts at audio cleanup wizardry. I'd like to think it gives the recording some of that informal beatnik vibe, but that may just be a rationalization for my mistakes. This conversation with Matt Tannenbaum runs just under an hour. All right. Who are you? Hi, I'm Matt Tannenbaum, and I am the bookseller here in Lenox and have been here since 1976. If you can count that number of years, it's 47. So I'm in the middle of my 48th year. We're at the end of, uh, toward the end of my 48th year. No, I don't want to say the end. But I'm right <laughs> in the middle of my 47th year. We're going to begin the 48th year. What's the anniversary date? April Fool's Day. I bought the bookstore on April Fool's Day. And I thought that was so appropriate. Not that the whole thing's been a joke, but <laughs> that I do like to tell jokes. And 10 days later, on the 11th of April, I turned 30. So that was the beginning of my grown-up life, my adult life, my life here in the Berkshires. I had come to the Berkshires a year before, back in, 19, in the winter of 1975. I had come from the Washington, D.C. area, where middle of February, it was beginning spring. So I got here, and there were like six more months of winter that year. I, what is what, what did I, what did I choose? And had you spent time here before? I have friends who lived here in the Berkshires at the time. I had three friends who were artists who actually kidnapped me one day in Brooklyn. I was in Brooklyn for a wedding. I came up from D.C., and Mike found me, and he said, "Instead of going back home, I'm taking you to the Berkshires." And they, Mike Ansel, he's a, an artist and a photographer living in L.A. now. Alan Silverstein, who worked for CET for many, many years and who was, an, who was also an artist. And Jim Youngerman, who was an artist and was still living here in the Berkshires. Al died about 10 years ago. And these three guys invited me up. They sat me down on their uh, kitchen table and said, listen, you're pushing, you're getting old. You're like maybe... 28 years old it's time you thought about retiring because <laughs> i was working at this job in, in washington i was the small press buyer for a small independent distributor book distributor rpm distributors and they were all artists and they said and they said yeah, you're the writer come up here and live up here and live with us and so i did i quit my job and i like to say that I, that i quit my job so i could read i could finish reading thomas pynchon's novel gravity's rainbow yeah. <laughs> which i had started when it first came out in 1973 1975, I'm still working still on going. it. And to this day, I sell copies. I sold a couple of copies in the last month or two. And I warned people that it could take a couple of years to read this. But it's so, so good. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And, there, and the, the main character, I'm getting way off from my history now, but the main character in Gravity's Rainbow is from Pittsfield. His name is Tyrone Slothrop, and he's from Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and he's in England. I'm not going to give away too much of the plot, but Wherever he goes on his conquests, a V-2 rocket happens to land there right after. So the government is interested in following Tyrone Slothrop around. <laughs> so it's, it, that's, that's the beginning. That's the, the conceit. So I moved up here, and I, I tried to write. 
the guys had their studios in the house where we were living, and I had a desk, and I had no computer. There was no computers in 1975, right? I didn't have one, and uh, pencil and paper. And I started writing stories, and they were terrible. And I had no idea what I was doing, Bill. Uh, what kind of stories? What were the topics? I was writing about young people in community. I think my model was Ann Beatty's books, her short stories and her novel. Ann Beatty was a woman I knew in college. And she, actually, her books weren't out yet. So I don't know what I was, where I was getting this idea from. But I, I remember that I had a place called The Point, and that's where this was all happening, The Point. Didn't have a name. It was just the point, but I didn't get very far in it, and I didn't have any training in writing. I didn't have any sense of what publishing was about. I well, I did because I worked at the Gotham Book Mart in New York City before that, and I worked in, as I say, a wholesaler. So I knew about books, but I didn't know about how to get a manuscript to a publisher. I actually did submit a story when I lived in Brooklyn years before. I submitted a story to the New Yorker magazine. The first story I ever wrote, called The 104. It was about the bust in Upper Manhattan, west side of Manhattan. And I got a rejection letter. And do you know anything about the New Yorker rejection letters? I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a number or a letter at the bottom of the page? I don't know. Well, my rejection letter had either a number, like number two, or letter B, at the bottom of the page. And I, I, I got the rejection. I said, well, it's rejected. What does this mean? It's on file. It's in a certain file that they're going to keep. So I'm going to keep writing. You know, Many years later, I read Brendan Gill's book, Here at the New Yorker, in which he describes the creation of that rejection letter. And in the linotype machine, a letter slipped out onto the page. It didn't mean a thing. <laughs> just gave you something to think about it did and they realized oh this is very cool we'll leave that <laughs> so I wanted to be a writer but I was not very good thankfully I didn't write any poetry I didn't write any poems at all but come on early poetry of any writer is always outstanding it's their best work <laughs> so yeah that's where my, my best work is it never happened so about a year later in January of 1976 I found out that this bookstore David Silverstein's bookstore, which I had used to sell books to when I was when I was the wholesaler down in, in Washington. And I used to buy their books because bookstore had a press, a bookstore press, uh, uh, David Silverstein, the owner of the, of the store, and his partner in, the, in publishing, Jerry Hausman, who was a poet. They had created the bookstore press. They, they put out a couple of anthologies. They reprinted children's books. A couple of children's books by Maurice Sendak. I think they are the ones who published Ray Brock's books on woodworking for kids. Ray Brock being Alice's husband mm -hmm. or former husband at the time. So I knew about the bookstore and I found out it was for sale. So I called this guy, David Silverstein, because we had never met. The one time I had come up to Lenox, because I was living in New Marlborough when I first got here, I came up to Lenox and the bookstore at that time was down on the corner uh, of, of Housatonic Street. Was, it was a cute little place with a wood stove and, you know, some books. Not an operation like what he eventually created when he moved down here. So it was smaller than the space it's here? Small, yeah. It's where Schatz Cafe is now. Mm -hmm. And so I called David, and I don't know if he had heard about me or knew about me. Or I, I don't know. He said, I'll be at the 
Cherry Orchard Cafe on Sunday for a poetry reading. The women's group at that time, there was a Sunday night, January, it was late January, I think. Women, mothers, daughters, and grandmothers were going to read poetry at the Cherry Orchard Cafe right in the middle of West Stockbridge. So we met, we talked for a few minutes, shook hands, made the deal. I had a partner at that time who was was the head of the company down in, in Rockville. And he had told me when I left, he said, if you're ever interested in doing anything more in publishing or in anything about books, let me know. So we became partners. So you're about business partners to, in the business acquisition of the, uh... of the bookstore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That didn't last. That lasted almost a whole year. Okay. And then it collapsed and we don't have to go into that. And what, what, yeah, what, is, a, what is a deal for a bookstore look like in 1976? For an, it was for an existing business. And then you rent the building. I right? rent the rent building, the right, right. I, I had no no interest in buying a building. The building was, I think, recently bought by the guy who's now the landlord. So it was a, a dollar amount that, that we agreed on that had inventory and that had goodwill. And that was what you, that's what you bought. You bought the name and you, and you bought the, uh, the inventory. And the inventory was, uh, was delightful. Yeah, tell me about that. Uh, the, the, was it was it like what it is now, or uh? it, it was it was a smaller version of what it is now. And so I really just built on what he had created. And how would you describe it then and now? When someone asks you what uh, what do you carry in your bookstore, how uh, how do you describe it? He had uh, a nice poetry section, a big poetry section that was larger than any poetry section anywhere other than the Gotham Book Mart or maybe City Lights in San Francisco or the Grillier, which is a poetry bookshop in Cambridge. But at that time, you would see maybe John Milton. You would see Sonnets by Shakespeare. You would see Rod McEwen. And that was about it. And were people buying a lot of poetry? In the- Emily Dickinson. In oh, the- were people buying poetry? I like to joke that we have a big poetry section because nobody buys the books. But, uh, but that's not true. Because <laughs> we sell a lot of poetry. And there were uh, poets and writers who live here. Certainly David published Jerry Hausman, Ron Atkinson, B. Gates, uh, any number of, of poets. So we had Gerard Malanga was living here at the time, on and off New York and here. So when you were designing the business plan in 76, you said, well, you know, poetry is a get-rich-quick scheme for all involved. Right, and, uh, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 didn't have a, I didn't have an idea. I, I, I knew it was a good idea to have a bookstore. That's all, that's all I had. I had never run a store. At the Gotham, I was the stock boy. I never handled a, a cash transaction. In fact, the first month or so after I had the store, uh, I get a call from a, from a, a, a woman who, who I don't know, because I'm getting to know all my customers. David left me a, a, a kind of a mental list. These people, they're in Tiringham, and they'll come to you. And these people are from Stockbridge. And these are, you know, uh, so this woman called me from Stockbridge. And she said, do you have any Anais Nin books? And I did, because Anais Nin was one of the authors whom I had started reading when I first became a bookseller. Let's backtrack and to say that, that I was reading Henry Miller, and I met a woman who said, if you like Miller, you should read his friend Lawrence Durrell. And if you like those, those are the two of them. They had a friend named Anais Nin. And the only place you can get all three of their books in this country is the Gotham Book Mart. If you ever get to New York City, she didn't know I was from New York. So I went to New York City and I walked into the Gotham Book Mart. You know about this from the movie. And I fell in love with the place. So this woman calls and says, do you have an Anais Nin? I actually have photos of Anais Nin at a book party at the Gotham Book Mart. 
Yeah, I read about that in your in your book about your years there. Yeah, and uh, that when she turned toward you, I when tell you, the story. Right, yeah, when right. you were going to uh, take your first picture, you were so shocked and alarmed that you dropped the camera. And, uh, I, I dropped it. You know, I didn't drop it on the floor, but I dropped it from my neck and, and and walked away, and then realized, oh, this is what some people can do. They can carry on a conversation and be photographed at the same time. This is my first brush with fame, I guess. So she said, "Do you have any nice thing?" I said, "Sure." And I put a couple of them aside. And when she came to see me later that day, she said, do you have any others? And I had more. And she I'll take all those. And then she bought a couple of other books. And I can't remember what they were. And Bill, the total of the charge was $43 and change. I couldn't look her in the face. Hmm. I couldn't look her in the eye. It was so much money. That was my first go at that kind of a realization that I'm not going to make a fortune, but people will spend that kind of money mm. for a book. And over the years, it's taken me a while to appreciate what people, other than who I am, how much people appreciate a, a bookstore and how much they'll spend, how, how many dollars they'll spend on books. Now, in the early days, we also had a lot of people here who didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of money, and people didn't have a lot of money, especially writers, people who were part-time writers and had day jobs and were just struggling to get by. I remember one guy who I would invite to our book parties, and he would say, I, I don't have enough money to buy a book. And I would say, well, you come in anyway, and I'll give you a book, and you can return it to me. So just so the author knows that the book is going out. <laughs> and we don't have that anymore. That has changed. Right now, books are very high-priced. So a hardcover novel is $30, $28, A biography or a history book is $35, $42. Barbara Streisand's book is $47. Mm. Explain for people the, the, you know, the economics of the book business. I mean, typically, the, the, you, the wholesale you, price is 50% of that. Is, is, is less than 50, a little less than 50%. It used to be just 40%. It's risen over the years. So we can get closer to 50%. And, and then, of course, you had all the competition from your discount places and the Barnes & Noble and Borders and Walden and then, of course, Amazon. Describe that trajectory, too, sort of how, you, how the evolution of the business here absorbed those changes. When Barnes & Noble decided to open in Pittsfield, I got a couple of responses. So I had people actually come in and say, I'm never going to that place. Okay. I'm always going to support you. I'm always going to buy my books from you. I don't think they use the word support, but but we can, we can talk about that because that always kind of rankled me that, that you know, you're going to support me. Honey, I'm supporting you. I'm providing these books that you want and need and should have in your life. So it's a give and take. The support, it was always funny for me to hear that. But so one customer came in and said to me, oh, hey, did you hear that Barnes & Noble is opening in Pittsfield? And I said, Yes, I had heard that. <laughs> and she, oh no, she said, you don't understand. It's the place where everybody in New York meets. It's like in the Upper West Side. It's like the cool place. I know that one on uh, 82nd Street yes. and Broadway. Is it still there? I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, know. Yeah. I know from years ago, though, when I lived in that neighborhood. Right, right. And there was a New Yorker bookshop there up on 88th Street and Broadway that probably went out of business. And Shakespeare and Company was up there. And they all went out of business because of Barnes and Noble. So this woman says, Barnes & Noble is the place to meet. 
So a few weeks later, she comes in again, and I said, well, how was Barnes & Noble? She said, the only people who were there were like my neighbors from Pittsfield. Uh, they, they, it, was, it was not the New York crowd that she expected to see in, uh -huh. in uh, Pittsfield, Barnes & Noble. This is no, no uh, dig on Pittsfield people. It's a different crowd. But it's a different. And then when Amazon reared its ugly head, I was caught off stride like everybody. And then I would hear people who say, it's convenient. And then one came first, either, either price came first or convenience came first. I think maybe it was the price because it was discount because that was the big selling point. Yeah, and just for, for context, I mean, Amazon will sell bestsellers at 40% off. Right. And right, right. Uh, that's a substantial difference. Yeah, that's, so that's, that's what the old loss leader was. If they sell that, then you're going to be on their site. You're going to get another book that's not going to be 40% off, and that's where they'll make their money. But, of course, that's not what they were making their doing. They were just trying to get information. Nobody knew that. that, that was, right. That the long-term plan was books right. were just the, the, was the, the foot in the door. Right, and, right, uh, right. And then Amazon. I don't know what happened, ever happened with the Amazon bookstore. I don't know. About five, ten years ago, they started putting out physical bookstores. Remember this? It probably didn't do well. I think they opened one in Seattle. They opened one. experiment. Yeah, as, as an experiment. And what I heard about it was that the books were so configured for the algorithm so like this shelf is for books for women who are thinking about getting divorced if they're between the ages of 32 and 35 and they have one or two children oh, wait i'm pretty sure i saw that label on a section yeah, of right. uh, your store uh, <laughs> uh, pretty pretty quickly i realized that there was no way to compete with that like i had never competed with uh, barnes and noble or anything else barnes and noble started with the coffee shops and i used to make coffee here Come on, you want a cup of coffee? We'll sit, we'll, have, we'll sit at the front desk. He still can't carry it around the store. You know, we still make people leave their drinks at the front desk unless they're drinking wine from the wine bar. That's a different thing. So I understood that that's what they were doing. They were copying and uh, having big overstuffed chairs. They were copying the comfort level that you get in a small store. So mm -hmm. why bother try to copy them? So that was that was a, a so, no-brainer for me. So you just kept on sort of keeping on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One one day, I remember a couple of years, some years ago, I didn't know who I was losing to Amazon because they didn't come in anymore. I didn't see them. I don't keep track. One day, I saw a guy on the street. I said, hey. And just as I was about to say, I haven't seen you, I realized that he's been buying. And I said to him, hey. I want you to come in. I got a bill for you for all the books you haven't been buying from me. And you know, he's never come back. <laughs> yeah. 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 I imagine a lot of folks grapple with that. Just the economic reality of, of finding things less expensively elsewhere, you know, at cross purposes with their, their, you know, the, the value they get out of a place like this and the community here. People, uh, people are appreciative of what we have, of what they get. I, I did have a number of people for those first couple of years people who would walk in and sigh and say, oh, we used to have a bookstore like this in my town. And I just kept my mouth shut because I wasn't going to say, well, you didn't go in and support it. You didn't go in and keep buying there. You went and got books from the discount place, and now your town is deserted because the hardware store is gone, the shoe store is gone, and the bookstore is gone. And even the, the grocery store is gone. Now you have a, a convenience store at a gas station or something like this. And this, so you see this is happening all over the country. So what, what's, the, what's the magic here? Is it a combination of this 
type of community in the Berkshires? Is it uh, your, your book selling uh, skills? Cer certainly who we have here. So let's say you order a book that I don't have that maybe I didn't even know about. And depending on how much I know about you, I'm going to get a couple of extra copies of that book because you're teaching me what people in the community want. So we just had an example a minute ago where Renzo came in and said, uh, how soon can we get such and such a book? I said, well, it's on order for one customer. And I put another one on just in case. So there's, there's that. It's the curation is what it's really all about. It's the fact that I have my experience, my now almost over 50 years worth of experience, and my knowledge of who the publishers are and my knowledge of what the mood of the customer is or what the mood of the, of the, of the community. Uh, uh, I'm looking for something, some subject, or, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling down about something. Pardon me, what have you got for me? I, I've had a couple of people come in and tell me that their therapists suggested they come and see me. And what, uh, what insurance do you take? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm not indemnified, or I am indemnified. I never, never knew what that word meant. So it's a combination, but it's, it's mostly the curation. And it's also the sight lines. This was something that, that I came to realize that David Silverstein had done, the way he set the store up. The middle of the store is all flat. So you can see to the end of the store, and you're not bottled in. And you're not, uh, you know, over, over the years I've had people say, oh, we should have a stack of books and such and such. Actually, one of the industry slogans is stack them high and watch them fly. <laughs> stack them high and watch them fly. I, I'm disgusted by that. So uh, I have, in, especially in the hardcovers, the front two tables, the hardcover fiction and nonfiction, one copy each. And people constantly say, I'm taking your display copy. No, no, that's for you, and I will replace it. But I don't want a stack of books. And the more room I have, because I don't have stacks, the more, the, the more titles I have. Uh, so let me, uh, let me share two quotes with you, both from you, one from, uh, from the movie. <laughs> it was a great moment where you were talking to someone at your front desk there, and uh, you said very mischievously, was the way I wrote it in my notes here, uh, you, said, you saw somebody uh, looking at something in the store, and you said, uh, as you rubbed your hands together, you said, there's a book for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was another great moment in the book that you wrote about your time at Gotham Bookmart uh, with, uh, with Frances. How do you pronounce her last name? Stella. Stella. Um, and something that she told you, always bring the customer with you back to the shelf when he or she asks for a book which you don't think you have in stock. Especially, especially. <laughs> that's right. especially if you know you don't have it, your customer is bound to see something else along the way. And so, as, as well as I am bound to see something along the way. So if the customer is glued onto that's what she or he wants and they're thinking about it, on the way I'm walking by all the other books that I can think of that they might want to get. So yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun. I, I try to tell the people who work here to do that, to always bring the customer back. And, and you, you have a relationship with the customer. I think, what is it? It's a transactional relationship or a relational, relational relationship. There are these, these buzzwords. But we, we, I try to be with the customer. 
and I try to look at the at the transaction from the customer's point of view. You come in here, and you now have the status because you're the customer. You're the one who I'm here to serve, and I have the status, of course, because I'm the guy who knows about allegedly about every book in the store. And I'll tell you another secret that that won't be a secret after this: that when I can describe a book, when I can maybe relate a narrative or a section of the book to someone have you read every book in this store and and it, it feels like i have i had a customer uh, a few weeks ago uh, uh, a couple came in and it was so it was in january and 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 they saw the wine bar and they said oh you know it's dry january i'm not drinking i would love to have a drink at your bar though so i had her husband go out and buy a bottle of non-alcoholic wine and poured her a glass. Huh. And she sat in the poetry section. Poetry's on one side in that room. And psychology and philosophy and religion and yoga and Eastern and... Uh, uh, All the things you need to read when right. you're getting ready to write some poetry. Right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so, so she was sitting in the chair. So I went over after a little while. I said, you know, how you doing? And she said, this is the most marvelous afternoon I've spent, I can't remember when, having a glass of non-alcoholic wine. I feel like I'm having a glass of wine, and I'm mm. sitting in your bookstore, I'm surrounded by these books, and I feel like I've read every one of them, because I'm surrounded by them. That was that's just a lovely, lovely moment, that she really was grokking it all. And so how much, how much reading do you actually get to do? I read a little bit every day. I might read a new book every day. I might read, uh, pick up, uh, depending on... on where I am when I'm getting ready to go to bed or after supper, go, in, go into the living room and, and look around. There is maybe a stack of books on the table of, of new books that I haven't looked at yet uh, or a, a book on the shelf and something. Uh, oh, oh, you know, I'd love to read that paragraph again about such and such. And maybe I'll read a couple of chapters of a book. And then I, I look at the, at, at the clock and it's like, you know, 1130. And, you know, what, what happened there? And then... One of the things I like to do now, besides read before bedtime, before going to sleep, is read in the morning. Is get up in the morning, and especially when Carol's not here, there's four or five, six books on the bed. When Carol, my girlfriend, lives in New York City, and also Vermont, and so she comes back and forth, and, and you know, oh, here's Carol. Okay, put put the books over here. <laughs> <laughs> Make some room for Carol. <laughs> and uh, 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 so there, there, there are times. Um, that book is from that shelf, and that book is from that shelf. I don't read as many books as many other booksellers. I don't read a lot of new fiction. I'm just not that excited by it. Some I am. I'm reading a, a new book now called 14 Days. 14 Days is not out yet. It's coming out in early February, and it's a collaborative novel. That is 37 writers. It's sponsored by the Authors Guild. And the Authors Guild had the foundation, had the uh, events here in, in, uh, in September the last two years. They had writers coming and talking about events, about uh, themes. And, and so Doug Preston, who was the president of the Authors Guild at the time, and Margaret Atwood have edited 37 writers who are all writing stories about the first two weeks of the pandemic. Hmm. So the conceit is a young woman is the super in this Lower East Side tenement. She's got this new job. She's a super. She, she said, the book starts, call me 1A. 
because that's her apartment number. I just started this job and the city just shut down. COVID is here. The previous super, I'm just, this is the first page or two of the book, so I'm not giving too much away. The previous super left something called the Bible, the name of the apartment, the Fernsby or something like this apartment, the Fernsby Bible. And it has thumbnail sketches of every tenant. Hmm. So she discovers a key to a lock, a padlock uh, to the roof. And she goes up and she's, oh man, I got the roof to myself. Well, two days later, everybody in the, in the building finds out about the roof. And they all go up. And after a day or two of being very, very wary of each other, they start telling each other stories. And this is where all the writers come in. This is Celeste Ng. This is Dave Eggers. This is John Grisham. This is Roxana Robinson, who will be here. Mary Pope Osborne, who will be here. And Rachel Vale. Roxana, Rachel, and Mary Pope Osborne will be here on February 9th for our launch of this book, 14 Days. I am so excited about this book. I'm up to day five myself. And I'm kind of stalled on day five because I'm reading some other stuff at the same time. And I don't want to rush through it because each story is so good. It's that good. Hmm. So there are all these characters on the roof are telling stories. Are they true? Are they, made, are they made up? Are they confessional? And so you have 37 top North American writers. And it's, so that, that's a new book that I'm reading. And, and as I say, we'll have these writers here on February 9th. So that's interesting. So the, let, let's go back a little bit to uh, you know the pandemic because the uh, well, we could describe a little bit about the genesis of the documentary, the doc, which, the which docu- I yeah it seemed like they had uh, that was underway yeah. before the pandemic and yeah. Adam Zacks the the uh, filmmaker found out about us when he when he moved out here his his uh, girl he met in college they got married and and the woman he met is a good friend of one of my daughters Shawnee. So Melissa brought Adam into to Lennox, and Adam walked in the bookstore, and he said, you know, I thought it would just be, you know, another bookstore. I like bookstores. I was an English major, you know. And he said, wow, this is different. It's curated differently. It's, it, the, 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 again, the sight lines are different. Everything about it is different. And the, I think what I like, what I'm maybe most proud of is, is the backlist. So let's say you walk, you walk into a, a, a Barnes & Noble or a any kind of uh, big city store. Kurt Vonnegut, you have Slaughterhouse-Five and Cash Cradle, right? Well, I have like all Vonnegut because he's the right... Or Ursula Hedgie, who was very popular maybe 30 years ago with... I can't remember the name of her book. Oh, I just had it in my hand this morning. Uh, um, but I have like two or three others of hers as well because those people who read her when, you know, maybe back then... We'll, we'll find her on the shelf and say, I didn't know she had written this. And so I am the purveyor of that knowledge, of that information to the public. So this is what Adam discovered. And, he, and at one point he said to me, actually he said to my children, because he knew them well, do you think your dad would mind if I made a movie about him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's such a ham. You know, go for it, man. <laughs> so he said to me, if you're not going to write any more of those stories, like the, in the book about the Gotham, let me film you telling them. I studied film in school. I'd like to make a film. So he put a mic on me, and he said, I'm going to do it in four chapters, four seasons. I'll start in the fall. This was in the summer of, 19, of 2019, he said this to me. And we started in the fall. He did one, one shoot. 
and then he went back to L.A. where he was living. Then he came back in the winter when we had snow on the ground. He checked the weather, I guess. We had snow on the ground. So we filmed again. And then, of course, COVID came in the spring for the third segment. So they moved back here. And he came in maybe a little more often. And nothing was scripted. The only thing was every once in a while he would ask me to recite a poem. Or, can you tell me that story about that, that such and such? But nothing was, you know... I didn't know what was going to happen. I think I have a lot of different costumes in the movie cause I'm, because it was not, you know, uh, <laughs> there was no continuity involved. No, it was interesting to see the way that it was put together in the back and forth between pre-COVID and, right, and right. during COVID. Yeah, because yeah. he didn't because he knew that COVID was going to change everything, but he didn't want to make a COVID movie. But it was it was it was it was sitting there. It was, it was, you know, it sitting, and, sitting and so there. one of my takeaways from the film, which there were many, was you were probably a little more conservative about reopening than other shops in in Lenox. My first grandchild was coming along. There were no vaccines. There's no way I was going to open. We're a mainstay in the town. I un- I understand that, uh, but there was no way I was going to risk the health of of myself and and, and my workers. So we just stayed close. And then when we decided to open, I knew I'd have to eventually, the vaccines were coming along and, and the next summer, the following summer was going to come. And I thought, well, I, I, I better open it. And I looked at the calendar and I said, okay, June. And we might as well pick June 16th because it's Bloomsday because it's, it's the most famous literary day on the calendar. But then I would start telling people that I wasn't opening until I could make sure that every book in the store had a happy ending. I was going through the whole stock. <laughs> so, what was that day like when when you reopened? What the, that was that was that was a lot of fun. That was. Did a, you have, uh, have some things planned? No, just just a, regular day. Just a just a regular day, and just and just uh, enjoying people, and and having people come in. And we had some press coverage on it too, mm-hmm. and that was that was good. So let's go back just a little bit. I want to just get a little little backstory on your trajectory through the Navy, uh, <laughs> to uh, well. You know, I, to, I was in the Navy because I had flunked out of—I didn't flunk out of college, but I didn't finish on time. I had become the sports editor, then the managing editor, and then the editor in chief of the uh, college newspaper. Okay, where were, you, where were you in school? American yeah. University in, in, in Washington D.C. Okay, so, 19, so 1967, 1968, there was a lot to cover on campus, and I had discovered this world of journalism. And I learned how to write a little bit, and I learned how to put a, m- a newspaper together, and I had a great community of editors working with me and staff working with me. And, Bill, I forgot to go to school. I forgot to go to class. I just, you know, I was not interested in my classwork, and so I didn't graduate. And I got a notice from the provost that I didn't have enough credits to graduate, and I went to see him, and he said... Uh, and, he, and I, I said, can you, can you help me out here? You know, <laughs> you know. and, uh, and I remember very distinctly that he opened his desk drawer and pulled out a copy of the American University Eagle, of which I was the editor, and the editor editorial demanding that the administration not interfere with the academics. And he said, you're... Mm. And I was, and so I didn't graduate. I lost my deferment. I lost the job that I had planned to be a school teacher to stay out of the uh, military. And so I got drafted. I decided to join the Navy 
to stay out of harm's way. And after six months of a four-year hitch, I realized I, I couldn't do this any longer. And I convinced the authorities that I was not suited for military service. And that was my first acting. And coincidentally or ironically, the way I did it was I went to a bookstore in Washington. I was stationed at the Navy Yard in Washington. And I found a book in the psychology department written by Eric Erickson, who, of course, was famous up here at Riggs. Mm -hmm. And so I used Erickson's uh, whatever he said, and I, I was able to convince the authorities that I was not, this was not for me. I'm not for them. They're not for me. And I'm not for them. So I got out. And the, and, and the weekend that I was doing all that is the weekend, weekend that I was reading that Henry Miller book, and Franny came in the, into the room and said, if you like Miller, you should read Durrell and Nin. And thus, thus my career segued from the end of, of, of one part of my life to the beginning of the other. How about you know, growing up? Were you, were you a big reader growing up? Or? James Bond. And I had no idea that they were goofing on themselves. Mm. That, that, and, and when I saw the movies, you know, when I was in high school, I had no idea it was, it was really a camp movie. I, serious to me. And, and you know, I remember that John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, enjoyed the Ian Fleming books. You know, this was this was beginning of the cold, or the, the beginning of the, of the '60s, and the Cold War was like, you know, we're going to win the Cold War kind of thing. But I was not a reader. I didn't read Robert Louis Stevenson. I didn't, didn't read Treasure Island or Kidnapped. I I did read Edna St. Vincent Millay. I think I, I started reading Millay when I was about 14 years old. So she was the first poet who I, I came across. And then she lived right here in around the, you know across from Berkshire County. And how about your uh, the the rest of your family? You're growing up. Uh, Dad died when I was very young. I think mom. I think they were in the book of the month club. I remember a copy of Naked and the Dead, and thumbing through it to try to find the bad words that you know fug you. <laughs> but I don't remember uh, a lot of reading going on. Um, we were a middle class, conservative Jewish conservative family, conservative synagogue. Um, so, you know, I read, I read the, the Torah, I read the Talmud, I read the, you know, commentary, you know, that was, and I got, I got a lot out of that. Um, but I didn't, I didn't read a lot of fiction. I didn't read a lot of, and I don't remember what I read in, I read Ivanhoe in ninth grade. I must've read some Hemingway, but I don't, I don't, don't have real memory of those as, as informing my life. So, you know, there's an interesting moment in the film. I just want to read you a quote from that for folks who haven't seen the film yet. You know, it's a it's a lot of fun, and it's a you know it's clear. Not only do you sell stories, but you're uh, you're a storyteller. And I don't recall what the prompt was, but uh, you said uh, fiction is the filter through which I see the world, so I don't run away from the world. And you you got very emotional, and you yeah. were fighting back tears. It seemed. Yeah. Um, what uh, what were you thinking about at that moment? Well, fiction, and as I say, I don't read a lot of fiction, t new fiction today, but fiction is where I discover the truth. Fiction is where writers can tell the truth. Nonfiction is where you find out the facts. But uh, Stoppard has a great line in one of his plays where he says, uh, one character says, but it's, it's a fact, I read it. And, and the other character says, no, it's, it's, it's the truth, and that's something else entirely, and it comes from the imagination. And I don't read a book and say, see a person on the street and say, oh, that's that character. It's not as simple as that. But I see the mythologies, the way 
characters live in books. And these characters are, <laughs> they're, they're written by people who create out of their own imagination what these characters do and say. And, and they follow a story. And if it's a good book, you discover the truth along the way in, in this narrative. You discover why someone acts the way they do. And so that's, that's basically what I meant by that. Is that, is that, is that, yeah, is that it, clear? Well, yeah, very much so. I was curious just in, in just the... Why it, why it affected me so yeah, much? Yeah, because you really, you paused there for a moment and you know, obviously it was, was edited, so who knows how long that actually lasted or what happened you know, yeah. immediately afterwards. But it was, uh, it just felt like a, a striking moment where you really were thinking deeply about something. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was. And he and Adam, the filmmaker, captured that perfectly and didn't want to prompt me to say something else. I don't think I said anything else, even after the shot was over. That was it. I didn't say anything. Fiction is, is where I learned the truth. And so when people now come in and say, oh, I'm not reading a lot of fiction, or I am reading a lot of fiction now. I spent all this time reading nonfiction, and now I want to read fiction. Why is that? And I'll say it's because now you have some grounding in whatever subject you like, and now you want to discover the truth about the world. And vice versa. Yeah. Now that you, you've read all that fiction, and for me, I'm reading now a, a lot more nonfiction. I'm reading a lot of history and some biographies because I know, especially in a biography, I, I see the arc of this person's life is going to be because I've read a lot of fiction. Given your start in the Berkshires with writing on your mind and other than the, the, the short memoir about the bookmark, what are your plans for a memoir or something that would capture all I these? Would, I've certainly written a lot more since the Gotham memoir, which was really just a talk I gave, and it got published. Those were notes. But it turned out there was a cadence to the book. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. 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 And, and I had not been able to find that cadence since because that was a throwaway moment. I just, I'm just going to write this up. Now that I want to do it, that's right. you, you know. I know that you're right. <laughs> you know that feeling. When you're not trying, it's, uh, it's a lot easier. Yeah. So, so I've written a good 600 pages, and they're terrible. So I've had all sorts of advice on how to get an editor or edit it myself or just spend some time. I, 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 take, I took a manuscript with me on vacation once, and it didn't work. It didn't work. You know what I wanted to do on vacation? Hmm. Take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and even when I go home in the evening or, or if I, uh, starting in the morning, because I'll open up the computer, and there it is. There, there, there's my blank page. I know I can do it. Nothing's there. When I'm sitting here, I'm surrounded by the life that I've led is when I can write, is when the words come to me. So I do jot down a few things every once in a while. And if I'm lucky, I can read them, uh, my handwriting, <laughs> later, in the, later in the evening or later in the week. In the film, there's some mention of one of your daughters. Shawnee, Shawnee, Shawnee wants to take it over. And, and, uh, and she's been, she has two little ones now at home. So she doesn't have a lot of time. But about a year ago, over a year ago, two years ago now, she started doing some of the bookkeeping. And she's really good at that. And I would get every once in a while, Dad, is this the way you did that? And uh, <laughs> uh, so she's, she's teaching me. And now, since the, the, the middle of last year, when she has a little more time, she comes in on weekends. And she's at the front desk. I get to come in a little late. And then I get to hang out and watch her work the front desk. And, and she knows what she's doing, and she has her own sense of what literature is. She, with two little kids, she knows a lot about children's books. 
and she has her own fiction that she likes, as well as the nonfiction. When I was 30, what did I know? I had my history at the Gotham, so I, I was steeped in that. And she was just st steeped in, in growing up here in the bookstore. So I think she's going to be fine. And then Sophie helps out as well. And so at Christmas time, was it Christmas? Or, or, or maybe just a couple of weeks ago, when I was, uh, I was exposed to COVID, and I didn't know if I was going to come down with COVID. Maybe it was, maybe it was right around Christmas. And it was a, a big Saturday before Christmas. So Sophie came in as well. I was, not ex I was exposed, but I never got it. So I was able to come in and watch the two of them run the store. You know the word kvell? Yeah, of course. It was a, a quelling moment. Well, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the bookkeeping. There was a moment also in the uh, in the film where somebody was there to help with some technology, I think. It was uh, uh, Charlie who said, couldn't you download all these invoices? Right, right. <laughs> yep. And then you said, and I wrote this down, there is conceivably a better way to run a business than the way I do. So does, uh, does does Shawnee have some ideas of things that she would want, oh, to, want to do differently? Yeah. Ab absolutely, yeah. So uh, the computer is this magical instrument that I use, you know, one uh, one thousandth of it. I can maybe run an Excel program, but but um, as far as spreadsheets, and uh, I, I just don't know how to do that. But she does, and it gives me information. The, the point-of-sale program that we have now, we got in 2016. Before that, we had another point-of-sale program for maybe five or ten years. That was an Apple program, because I only liked Apple, uh, Macintosh computers. And they didn't make one that that works with the publishing industry. So I finally had to get get rid of that. But before that, it was it was, it was all by hand. And, and to this day, I, I retain information that is not in the computer. One of the ways I learned about books was what David, my predecessor, told me, he said, you know, you can, you can have accounts with publishers, but you want to go to the wholesaler down in New York. And David was originally from New York City, and I, was, I knew New York City. And there was a wholesaler on West 10th Street in the village, a city block long warehouse. And all the books were arranged by publisher. And we had mimeographed sheets with the names of the publishers and spaces for the books that people would special order or that I would want to replace on the mimeograph sheet in the order by in which you would see them. My favorite example is somebody came in and asked me for a, a novel by Barbara Pym, P-Y-M. I'd never heard of a British writer. I knew the publisher was Dutton because I looked it up in books in print. And so I wrote her the, the title down under Dutton and I knew where the Dutton bin was in the warehouse. And I went there, and again, this is before computers. So all the books were in the bin, alphabetical by author. So there was that Barbara Pym book, and there were like three or four others. So I bought those two. <laughs> and my customer bought all of them. Yeah. And that's how I learned. So, so I went, it's like I went shopping before, so people could come shopping. My wife once asked me around Christmas, she gave me a little list of, of people to buy books for. She says, could you find some books for these people? I said, I don't know how to do that. She looked at me. And I said, oh, that's what I do. <laughs> so just a couple more things I thought we'd talk about. This um, is fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Well, you know, I mean, the, I think the one thing the film does very well is it kind of captures 
uh, you know, what you clearly enjoy about being in the space every day, which is talking to people about, about books and right. about other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so actually, let me, let, me, let me ask you about that. You know, you, you noted in the book about uh, the Gotham Book Mart that, that Frances, after she retired, after she, so, she sold the business, she still uh, came downstairs uh, every day. It seemed. Every day, right, right. So what? Uh, what's what's your plan for? Uh, for oh, oh, that's uh, yeah, that's yeah. exactly my plan. Yeah. That's exactly my plan. We have that that uh, rocking chair in the in the in the it's a glider uh-huh. uh, in the front, and okay. uh, that's 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 where I plan to hold court, uh, and and at the bar, uh, um, but I'll give up the office. But I'll be on hand for you know helping out. How uh, how did the bar come about? How long has that been? Oh, there? the bar! Oh, that's a great story. The bar is. Uh, I didn't want to have coffee. At one point, I wanted to have a coffee shop, a, a coffee bar, but it didn't work out. So, two thousand nine, I am in Prague, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, <clears throat> visiting my friend Jan Wiener. Jan Wiener was one of the first people I met when I got here in nineteen seventy six. He was a Prague native, a soldier in World War II, uh, had a horrendous war, a prisoner of war camp, escaped twice, eventually ended the war with the uh, Czech wing of the RAF, came back to Czechoslovakia, was imprisoned by the Soviets when they took over, when the communist government took over in Czechoslovakia in 1948, five years hard labor camp, eventually got here to Lenox because his father's cousin had begun a school in Germany back in the 20s and then had fled Germany and moved to Vermont and then eventually to Lenox. And the Windsor Mountain School was this great co-ed prep school. Every, every once in a while they have a reunion. I still see some of these people that have been coming since they, um, they closed down in 76. But Jan was here then that we met. And then he had this incredible life in Czechoslovakia before the war. He grew up in, 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 in the cafe societies in the 20s and 30s. So I'm visiting him in the hospital because he'd had a stroke and he was dying. And I wanted to come back. I came back and I said, I'm going to make a wine bar in his honor. And that's why we did it. And we called it Get Lit because that was a good name. And, um, and, and it's been so much fun. And how, when is, when is the, uh, the wine bar open? How does it that is, work? It is open as soon as we open in the morning. <laughs> yeah. It's... it's uh, uh, sometimes we're here in the evenings, but it's open during the day. It's open all all day. Our our motto, tongue in cheek, is you can't drink all day unless you start in the morning. Okay, <laughs> but but we'll let you start whenever you get here. <laughs> I like that. That's better, a little better than the uh, the old cliche about it's you know it's happy Five, hour somewhere. Right, you know, right. As, as they say in New Orleans, it's seven a.m. somewhere. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and we and and we have lots of people who come for the bar. One one of the one of the reasons for our success in the last ten years or so is the internet. Is people look us up. Certainly, we've gotten a lot of publicity from the movie and 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 uh, other other mentions in in, in in newspapers and magazines. But online, New York and Boston, and we're that midpoint, or or Boston and Buffalo, we're that midpoint, and so we get a lot of people, especially on weekends. All during the year, who come because uh, they say, "What? Well, let's see where we can go. Let's see where we can meet up." Oh, Lennox, it's right in the middle, right? And, and look, what do they have? There? Oh, they have a bookstore. It has a wine bar. Let's go! <laughs> and so people come in and they know about it. We've had bachelorette parties here. 
I had a, a book club from Connecticut who called me up a year later to say, we loved it so much. I mean, they would walk in. So I'm standing at the bar one, one Saturday afternoon. I just happened to be there. And I, I see a woman walk in and, and do a complete double take. Look at the books where, where she just walked in and then back at the bar. And she, and she walked up to me and she said, seriously? <laughs> I said, yes. And all her friends came in. And a year later, they called to say, we want to have dinner at your place. I said, well, I can't provide dinner. But you can bring dinner and I'll set up some tables in the bar room and, you know, and I'll stay open that evening. Hmm. And, uh, that's, and we have a great time. Hmm. It's more having a great time. And then standing at the bar, I'm standing behind the bar. The poetry section is there. Whatever is there, whether it's a copy of the film or a copy of my book or a copy of Jan Wiener's book, we'll get the conversation going about books and we'll sell more books. And that was my idea was like, I'd like a glass of wine during the day or in the evening. I'd like to have a drink mm -hmm. and I, I'm going to talk to people anyway. It's not just a, it's just not just a, you know, uh, a cashier six is open. Come on down. It's, oh, oh look what the book you got. Let's, do you, do you know about such and such a book? And we'll do that at the bar. And then somebody else would say, there's a bar here? <laughs> Can I have a drink also? At the end of the memoir uh, about the Gotham Bookmark, you wrote, you, know, you, you tell the story there of kind of how you know, that launched you into this work and the serendipity here and there of whose paths you've crossed and when and why. And you wrote, uh, who knows what any of us might have become if our lives hadn't turned out the way they have. What would your life have, have turned out if you hadn't had those serendipitous moments? And what do you appreciate most about the way things have turned out? This is a question that comes up in my mind every once in a while. And my mind shuts it down right away. I have no idea what else. Some people say maybe a, a teacher. I, I could have been a teacher. Uh, I just, I, I have no idea. But I'll tell you a funny story about the very last two pages or so of the book, which is just, as I say, the book was just, it was a talk I was giving. And I thought I would mention all these writers whose works I came across, from uh, Louisa Alcott to uh, Louis Zukowski from A to Z. So the last two pages are just a list of names, right? Gene Shalit. I gave a copy of the book to Gene Shalit, and we're good friends. And he said to me, I read your book, and I hurt my back picking up all the names you dropped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there was a, a great story in there about uh, J.D. Salinger oh, sitting Salinger. down in the stacks. Yeah, so I, I can recall it exactly. This was the place where Bookazine, that warehouse in New York that I go to, that I would go to, now they're, they're in Jersey now, and they're all computerized, so I can't go there anymore because they're not, the books are not by the publisher anymore. So... But Bookazine would arrive every day at one o'clock or so, and there was a, sh a shelf outside of Francis's alcove where the Sufi books were, and nobody ever looked at the Sufi books. And so that became the place where we would open up the boxes. And that was my job to open the boxes. And one day this guy was sitting on the floor, in and, and he had all the Sufi books, kind of like, like the books on, on my bed when Carol's not there. They were just scattered everywhere. And this guy was, and I had to walk around him, work around him. And I'm not going to interfere with him because he's a customer. He's browsing. And a little later, I don't know where I went. He was not there anymore. And I'm standing right near there where I was. And Diane came back and, uh, to, and told Andy, uh, Mr. Salinger left all his 
books here. Does he want me to mail them? And Bill, I just found, looking through my papers, the list of the Sufi books that he bought. Uh, okay, so this is a list of a uh, dozen or so books uh, on October 27th, 1971. And so why, yeah, why was this typed up this way? I, I think I must have asked Diane, can you give me, give me, oh, give, me, give me that list? Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Well, you know, when all of his work is finally published that we haven't seen, there's going to be a, a short story in there about the, the guy shelving books who wouldn't <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> I'll be 78 years old this spring. And uh, Shawnee has these two little ones, so uh, she can't come in every day, not till they're in, you know, school age. Uh, so, you know, at least another four or five years. So come back and visit again. Of course, of course. <laughs> and good luck. I mean, you clearly hate spending time here, so it's going to be miserable <laughs> for you. But I, I think you'll figure out a way to, to, to cope with it. It's <laughs> just so much fun. In the mornings, I have about a 12 or 15 minute commute from Housatonic. And in the first few minutes of every day, I think, what am I going to do today? What am I going to do? And then the second half of the commute, I realize I'm going to get interrupted all the time. I'm not going to get anything done. And I start laughing at myself. So I arrive every day in a very good mood because I don't have a lot of expectation. <laughs> <laughs> That's living in the moment, yes. <laughs> That's great. Well, Matt, thanks. This has been, uh, been a lot of fun. Good. Glad good. to hear. Uh, glad to hear more. More of your stories. Great. Thank you. And come to the film yeah, on uh, uh, at the uh, library. That was Matt Tannenbaum, longtime proprietor of the bookstore in Lenox. Outside of his store, you can meet Matt at the free screening of Hello Bookstore that will be held at Mason Library in Great Barrington on Saturday, February third at seven p.m. With doors open at six thirty for free refreshments. Also on hand will be Adam Zacks, director of the documentary. The event marks the return of free monthly film screenings at Mason, which were suspended during the pandemic. They'll be held in the library's recently refreshed Historic Reading Room, which you can read more about in an Argus story from last month called Mason Library's Beauty Day at BerkshireArgus.com. This is Bill Shine, and thanks for listening to the Berkshire Argus podcast.